Nancy Kelly's Banneher. Some days the Shannon dragged its tangles far below the surface. The Martello Tower turned on its head, the bridge touched its toes. On days like those, bargemen stood on the deck singing bolero, the melody spiralling through the bridge's archways. She'd fill her pockets with hazelnuts and windfall apples gathered on the way to the cinema set up at the Haggard. Trains still stopped at Esker then, and old women dressed in black. At the school, Sister Sebastian nursed unspoken hurts, while Madame Joseph took out her dolls for the children. Her father channeled runoff water from the spring to save her mother trips to the well, and her sisters dreamt of goose cooked on the crane in an iron pot, a pail of coal for the school fire. Phil Dunn, fixing a gramophone, played them tunes just to test it. If I was a blackbird, I'd whistle and sing. While the ESB men arrive to raise their wooden poles, she sees their lights waking up across the town, just as memory draws down the dark. I'm Jessica Trainer, and I wrote this poem after speaking to Nancy Kelly, who shared with me her vivid childhood memories of growing up in the town of Banneher in the 1940s. I wrote the poem as part of an intriguing commission that I'd been given by Offaly County Council and the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage to write a poetic history of the town of Banneher, the historic town on the banks of the River Shannon. It involved delving into the distant past, uncovering the town's literary connections, hearing stories of the famous horse fair and the local obsession with the GAA, and even trying to solve the mystery of the origin of the famous phrase, that beats Banneher. We're standing here on the banks of the River Shannon in Banneher town, and I am with local historian and expert on all things Banneher, James Scully, who has been a real lifeline and a wealth of information on Banneher and all its history while I've been writing this poetic history of Banneher. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the town, James? Well, Jessica, if we were to take one spot that would give you a view of the history of Banneher, it would be standing here just downstream from the Red Crane. We're looking across to the Great Bridge of Banneher and of course prior to that you had a very ancient river crossing here. The bridge itself is magnificent, put up in less than two years between 1841 and 1843, but it transformed the riverscape here. The old shallows, the ford, the mill races and the eelweirs were all t literally taken out of it. And so much so that the West Bank, which we're looking across to, was created from material that was removed from the bed of the river and is now a very fine eight-acre town park. Aside from this side of the Shannon, which we are going to explore in detail, what can we see across the way on the West Bank, on the Galway side? Well, just looking upstream, just almost uh, immediately beside the bridge, is a Martello Tower. 
There are 52 Martello Towers, or there were in Ireland, and only two are inland. One here at Panahar Bridge on the County Galway side, called Fanesker Martello, and the other downstream uh, called Melik Martello, although it is in Lusma in County Offaly. So why have you two Martellos in the middle of the country when normally they are maritime? The idea was, and there was a genuine basis for this dreaded fear of a Napoleonic invasion, landing in Galway Bay in the west of Ireland and heading unimpeded by the landscape across County Galway, Roscommon, Offaly, Kildare to attack Dublin. So such a progression could only be halted at the River Shannon. Well, Jessica, we've just come into Ard Owen, and uh, this was the location of the great fair green of Banagher. Banagher Fair was absolutely enormous. It went on over four days. You were talking of a day for sheep, a day for cattle, a day for horses, a day for pigs. Tens of thousands of sheep and thousands of cattle. Napoleon's army, uh, they came from France and bought horses here, and the British army also did. Anthony Trollope, when he came to Banagher in 1841, he arrived on the 19th of September. Banagher Fair had just finished, but there was still the trace and sound of horses. And one of the first things that Anthony Trollope did with his new salary was to buy a hunter, a fine horse, which was really to transform his life. And he became a member of the local equestrian class. The horse fair still takes place, doesn't it? The horse fair still survives. It's on the... Sunday, nearest to the 15th of September. And it's in the main street now and in the market square, just beside the graveyard. Today is the, the annual uh, horse fair. It's a huge tradition here. It's one of the oldest fairs, if not the oldest, uh, started back in the 1600s. The street uh, in Banagher is quite, it's quite narrow anyway, but on fair day like today, um, it's, uh, it's closed off, three quarters of it is closed off, and uh, there are vans, uh, lorries, uh, food vans, all, all sorts of uh, transport for horses parked either side, and the street itself is completely covered in horses, um, and in little pockets of the, of, uh, of the street there are people bartering, bidding, Trying to uh, trying to sell, obviously get the best price, and somebody else wants to pay a lower price. So, um, and they've been encouraged by their by their peers uh, to offer less and offer more. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fun even just uh, just sitting watching them and listening to the the carry on. I'm Dave Boylan. Um, I live in Banagher. I've been been living here since uh, since I was born in 1970. I've been away for a while and then came back when I got married and uh, settled back home. My grandfather was always, he had horses on his farm. Th those days, uh, it was for work purposes. Uh, the horses were working horses on the land. Uh, so he always made a trip to the fair. So that made, made it of interest to me to see what he was doing. When he passed on, then his, his son, my uncle, uh, he was one of the most famous faces at the fair. He won numerous competitions for finest filly and so on. 
my 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 primary interest in terms of horses now is horse racing. I love horse racing. Um, and uh, so we're regulars at the local meetings here, Kilbegan and Roscommon and so on. Um, I passed on the interest to my son, who is now a racing journalist for the Racing Post. So, uh, yeah, yeah, horses are right through my family. The Horse Fair. On an autumn night, the road is clear, the fair green seething in its concrete grave. Nowhere to hitch a horse, nowhere to pasture the thousand ghostly sheep that flood the narrow road, caught in the street lamp's amber. Along Church Street, they turn, horses, sheep, cattle, quick as clouds, passing across the moon, seeking the green that fed them through famine, tithes and civil war. Winnie's echo on St. Rhina's gravestones. Through years of unpaved roads and ambushed mail cars they canter, the jingle of a sulky carried on the breeze, hooves sparking on vanished cobbles. We, behind our curtains, hear only the passing music of cartwheels, a bridal bell. We wake in the morning, expecting to find the streets awash with muck, farmers and tanglers slapping hands, an old woman with a piss-pot walking the throng, shouting, Kakin me can, young man. Instead, an absence ripens into bitter slows that dot the hedgerows we pass as we pull on masks, walk aimless circuits, yearn for the keen of a single hoofbeat. So we are coming in now to St. Rhina's Church and Graveyard. Um, James, can you tell us a little bit about this graveyard, which is hidden away behind the main street in Banagher? Yeah, well, hidden is a, is a great word. Although it's in the, the heart of the town, it's surrounded by 19th and 20th century housing. Really, it goes back to the 6th century, to the time of St. Rhina herself. But uh, looking at the memorials here, the earliest... Uh, memorial we have that is standing here is that of Sir John McCoughlin in 1590. So there's about 150 of them after that, uh, coming right up to um, 1928. The graveyard was, was closed in 1918 officially, but people still continued to bury for about 10 years. And can you tell us a little bit about St. Rhina herself? Because I know she's a hugely important figure in the, in the history and the mythology of Banagher. First of all, St. Rhina is female. This, this surprises a lot of people. <laughs> and she's here in the 6th century. And we, we don't know too much about her. She, she seems to have got into the family way and this was frowned upon by her brothers and the local chieftains. And just to, there was an attempt at one stage to drown her. And she was thrown into a, a river but she survived, and her son was born, and so on. And, of course, she's the patron saint of the parish, and, of course, uh, probably best known as the patron saint of the local hurling team, the great Rhinist hurling team. Watch your steps. I will, I will. <laughs> they do great work. <laughs> they keep, keeping the place tidy, in some ways. St. Rhina and the Bishop. Oh, mother, your brother, the bishop, says he has power to cure you, but he'll only journey half the way. I ask him, what does he mean forcing you to travel so far in your agony? 
He said, our lives are a series of chains we drag with us, arrange in the way that suits us best, and it suits him best to exercise your pain in the place of pointed stones that God has anointed our meeting place. I feel a curse rise in my gut, clamp around my heart like a reliquary, but let's see what he can do. I'll offer my anger up to God, stamp it into the jagged mountains, ferry it over the sucking bogs we'll cross. If he cures you, I'll smooth my rage into blocks of limestone, build a convent by the Shannon where I can cut out the middleman bishop, beckon God into my oratory where we'll drive the roiling waters. Well, that's a pair of identical, what's called table tombs. Uh, the name is quite obvious. Uh, often when I'm here uh, working in the graveyard, I'm with others, we would bring a picnic. And invariably we would have our picnic on one of the table tombs and very often here with Anne and Mary Fox, uh, two very important sisters who lived in Banagher in the, about the 1840s. They died in 1845 and 1847. So during and hard years. Yeah, during the hard years. And they were probably aware of the hardship in the town, so much so that they left money to endow a secondary school or a convent. Uh, a French order came to Banagher, known affectionately as the LSU, the La Sancta Union. So they are really the Sacre Corps de la Sancta Union. They are still here, living in the town uh, up the avenue, but they're no longer teaching in the schools. So it all sort of came to an end about 10 years ago. But the nuns are still uh, happily and heartily living in the town. And it's a, it's a fascinating legacy in a, in a place that feels quite hidden. But once you're up here on this graveyard, on this hill, you have a wonderful panoramic view of the rooftops of the town around you, down to the, the concrete works. But you also have the sound of children playing in the schoolyard still, yeah. all these years later. And you're right, there's a great irony. We're in the heart of the town and in the graveyard, you can see all of the town. But the graveyard is hardly noticed. Foxes in the graveyard. On soft days, a flash of furs as a vixen mounts our tomb's table to sniff worn lettering. Below us, the town's back windows, dark and unsure, look away to where the malting's rusting roofs rub the horizon. Banagher may turn its back, but we perch on its shoulders, dangle our legs in drizzle, watch boats mooring at Shannon Harbour. The odd strolling tourist might feel their skin prickle at our glance. In 45 and 47, we left a world grown thin and hungry. Now, as we doze above the schoolyard, children's games drift through our sleep, and death is a snowflake melting on Shannon waters, famine just a word in a book. Like probably every other town in Ireland, Banagher has been celebrated in song. This is The Town I Left Behind by Johnny McAvoy. Last night as I lay sleeping A 
dream came to my mind about a place I loved so well, the town I left behind. When I took on the job of writing a poetic history of the town of Banagher, I knew that as part of the commission, I wanted to pay tribute to the town's musical traditions. Perhaps there was some way of working with Banagher's younger residents to give that new generation a song of their own. I knew immediately who I wanted to work with, Belfast composer Elaine Agnew. On Cuba Street, where all friends meet, the Shannon where you swam. And I can see that old Bond Road, a tough pile to the sky. Oh, Banner, you'll be my town until the day. Well, I was approached by Jessica. She contacted me and she was really keen that, uh, that I would get involved in the project because she loved the idea of creating words to create a song for Banneker. I sent Elaine one of the poems I had written with transition year students at Banneker College. I had worked with the students to capture their love of the town in their own words. And when they'd written their poems, I collaged lines from the text together so that every student involved would have a line of their own in the song. So initially Jessica then sent me an A4 sheet and the title was From the Shannon to St Rhinus and it was quite a long poem. I think it was structured maybe into like three or four different sections and then there was a recurring refrain and every time that refrain was repeated it was extended by two more lines. There was another kind of image in it. And then by the time you got to the end of the poem, the refrain, which had probably, at that point, had been said maybe four times, it became like a little chorus at the very end of the the poem. So the poem had a really beautiful structure. We also needed some singers and didn't have far to look. St Rhinus National School is located in the middle of the town of Banagher County Offaly, just on the banks of the Shannon. Um, and it would be classed as a large school from around here. Um, there's well over 200 pupils in the school and we are growing. There's nearly 30 junior infants start every year. Um, the big interest around here is GAA and our school is very well known for being part of the GAA uh, Common and School programmes that does be on in both ladies and gents football and hurling. And That's Lisa Gardner. She was the teacher for our group of singers when they were in sixth class in St. Rhina's National School. When Elaine started working with them, they were still in fifth class where their teacher was Gillian Leonard. Working on a new song with a group always has its challenges. But at this time, there was an extra complication. We were in the middle of COVID at the time. So we all moved on to Zoom And actually, on Zoom, it worked really, really well, which is, I can't believe I'm actually saying that. And so she would Zoom me all the way from Belfast, right into the heart of St. Rhinus National School on, I think we always did it on a Tuesday morning. So there's the kids, there's maybe 24, 25 of them. They're all sitting in their seats and they're just staring at me on a big screen. It's kind of, it's the weirdest thing. 
I uh, had sent the words in advance. So the children all had a copy of them. And then we went through the words and they, they broke it down into maybe eight sections. And then they took a vote on, you know, their, their most favourite six or whatever. The pupils had strong opinions on what parts of the poem to keep for the song and what to leave out. They took ownership of the text, and this felt important too, that the words they were singing should really mean something to them. So they really loved uh, the very opening. At the bottom of the town, the lovely waters of the Shannon lie. Winter sunlight reflects on ripples, birdsong echoes on the breeze. So they really loved the images and the sounds that that really created. And then they loved the bit, there's a bit about being in a school. When the day is over, students barge the halls, bags tossed, doors slammed, the classrooms finally deserted. So they loved that because they said, oh yeah, that's that's really what it's like. It, you know, how the silence descends on the school at the end of the day. And then the other bit that they absolutely loved was the bit all about St. Magnus Harlan pitch. So I quickly realised that this was really at the heart of the community of Banacher. Cars pull up, the grounds alive with nerves, the sound of players' studs on stone as they run out for a final warm-up. And Elaine got them involved in a different kind of warm-up. Not GAA this time, but getting ready to sing. So I was sitting in my house here in Belfast, doing warm-ups and standing up, looking at my laptop, and then with all the children doing it at the same time, and you go, shake it out, shake, shake, shakety shake, shake it up, shake, shake, shakety shake. And you just move your hands, arms, shake it to the right, shake, shake, shakety shake. And so we always began each session with that. So I say, OK, everybody up on your feet. And here we go, ready, shake it up, shake, shake. And then we went to the right, we went to the left, and we went up and we went down and shake it out, shake, shake, shakety shake, shake it up, shake, shake, shakety shake. I'm here with James Scully in the grounds of a house historically known as Hill House, now known as Charlotte's Way. And I'd love if you could talk to me about some of the historical connections between the author Charlotte Bronte and Banner Town. Well, the connection is very strong. Although Charlotte herself is only here for a week, it's a very important week in her life. It's the week in the middle of her honeymoon. She married Arthur Bell Nichols of Banner in... 1854 in July and they spent a full month honeymooning in Wales and mostly in Ireland. Some people who have studied uh, this honeymoon would say that it was probably the happiest week of her life and she realised much to her father's dread she has not married Don but she has married a gentleman. She meets his brothers and sisters, they are students in Trinity College, they are refined and above all she describes Aunt Harriet, uh, who was Arthur's aunt who adopted him as a real English gentlewoman with London manners. But anyway, the story was very happy during that week. But unfortunately, Charlotte Bronte died nine months later during pregnancy. But there is another connection then as well, isn't there, to a number of different artefacts that found their way back to Banneher? When Charlotte died... She was the sixth of the Bronte siblings to die. Anne and Emily and Branwell had died, and Maria and Elizabeth before that. So there's nobody left in the parsonage at Howard except Patrick and his son-in-law, Arthur. Arthur lives with him till his death in 1861, and then, astonishingly and very disappointingly, 
he was not appointed to the perpetual curacy of Haworth. So he is left very suddenly without an occupation and without a residence. So he gathers as much as he can of the relics of Charlotte Bronte and the Bronte family. Portraits, manuscripts, uh, the grandfather clock, the gun, the maid, Martha Brown and the dog, and they make their way to Banagher. And the place becomes a living museum to Charlotte then the for the rest of his life. The place actually becomes a living museum, despite the fact that after a couple of years, Arthur marries possibly his childhood sweetheart, his first cousin, Mary Anna, and they live happily uh, till his death in 1906. And during that time, many uh, Bronte lovers would have come to Banagher seeking to buy all these Bronte relics, if we can use that word. But Arthur was very protective, not only of the relics, but also of Charlotte's reputation. And they were held here till his death in 1906. Mariana survives for another nine years. And during that time, she arranges for three auctions with Sotheby's in London. And a lot of the Bronte relics make their way back from Banagher to London to be bought by the Bronte Society and end up in the very rooms in the parsonage in Howard that they had come from. So one of the poems I enjoyed writing the most was based on a folk memory that I remember you telling me, James, the first time we met, um, of Charlotte Bronte and a gun and the bridge over the Shannon. Charlotte on the Bridge You might have heard how her father, left seething in that moor-perched house, would fire his pistol through the window, bullets slicing between gravestones, as Branwell cursed him from his bed and local women looked on, spreading their shifts on the headstones to dry. But here on the Shannon the story goes that when Charlotte came on honeymoon to godless Ireland, she had another passenger in tow, its metal tainting her hands with a scent like thumbed coins. And one night on the bridge that cuts across the gale-tossed waters, she's standing, uncertain, looking down, when a farmer coaxing his nervous horse across the seething river sees her. Though he's used to the silhouettes who stare into chaos on a moonless night, he's surprised by the bonnet, by the woman's slight frame, jostled this way and that by wind. And when he comes near, the woman turns to him, face shaded by her bonnet brim, holds out a pistol, slippery with rain. What do I do? I must get rid of it. Toss it, sure, he says, as if she's mad gesturing to the waters that swallow indiscriminate whole farms and diamond rings, that spit out longboats and swords, these fickle secret keepers who surprise us with their thefts and gifts. The bonnet gestures yes, the gun spirals down. The whole song is based on one rhythmic fragment from one of the warm-ups Shake it out, shake, shake, shake it, shake, shake it in, shake, shake, shake it, shake. So I took that rhythm, dig a dum, 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 dig a dum, and uh, then I put some notes to it, and then slowed it down.
And that little musical riff became, I suppose, the, the core of the, the, the whole piece. And then around that, I added a couple of other musical ideas. So in the song, we have the four little refrains that I mentioned. Back into town, I turn and gaze at the Shannon and the frosty haze. And that brings us back to kind of the opening stanza music again. And I like the idea, so back into town I turn and gaze. So I, I like the idea that on the word gaze, it would be quite a long, you know, that you're you're looking at something or you're looking at the beautiful River Shannon and you just, you kind of, you're, you're frozen on the spot. So it just goes, back into town I turn and gaze at the Shannon Then the next refrain, same music but different words. Sound fades into silence again, waiting for the next day to begin. The next refrain, I live for the smack of each ball as it's kicked. I live for the smack of each ball as it's kicked. So it's really interesting that the words, I live for the smack of each ball as it's kicked, sound fades into silence again, back into town I turn and gaze. So I'm sure Jessica didn't do that on purpose, but it just worked out that in the musical line, da 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 that that kind of high long note was either kicked again or gaze. So it really worked in terms of in terms of word painting. And at the end of each stanza, there's a line that I use the same music for each time. And it starts low and it just kind of works its way up a scale. And in each of those lines, it it always perfectly fitted into the same music. And again, I don't think Jessica did that on purpose, but that's just how it was. So the first time it's Bags tossed, doors slammed, the classroom's finally deserted. So the piano accompaniment goes. So setting it to music then was a joy. And there it was, going round and round on the bedroom rug. I ran down. Even if you've never been to Banagher, there's a famous phrase that you'll probably know from the Christmas radio ad for Barry's tea. You'll never guess what Santa brought, I said. Well, doesn't that beat well, Banagher? doesn't that beat Banagher, said my mother. The train said no less. Isn't Santa the smart? The famous phrase, that beats Banagher and Banagher beats the devil. Can you tell us where it came from? There are two versions. There's a folklore version that a man called Banagher... He's had a drink, maybe too much, and he's crossing the bridge. And there's a card table. And there's a man at the table. And Banagher sits down and plays cards all night with this man. And it's only as the morning light comes that it dawns on him. When he looks beneath the table, he sees the cloven hoof, that the man he has been playing with is the devil. Historically, in 1787, the borough of Banagher was sold for ten and a half thousand pounds to a man called Caledon, 
But another borough is bought by a man called Ponsonby in Kilkenny. And Caledon and Ponsonby decide to do a swap. So Ponsonby from Kilkenny becomes the owner of the borough of Banagher and Caledon became the owner of a borough in County Down. And we think that sort of corruption, buying and selling of parliamentary boroughs, that someone in 1787 or the following year said, well, corruption, well, that beats Banagher, and Banagher beats the devil. I think those are both good stories, but the poet in me is definitely drawn to the folklore version. <laughs> I'll stand with the history as a local historian. (laughs) (laughs) But we won't fall out. (laughs) Banagher beats the devil. It began like so many nights, a cold walk from the shebeen, the bile of another loss churning in my gut, and then the shock of the table in the middle of the bridge. There was a man sitting at it, a stillness in him so deep it dimmed the sound of water rushing underneath. Now his face has faded into the shadow left by his candle's low flame, but I remember I felt there was nothing to fear. When day came again and I had sweated the putchine out, my conscience sent me to the priest. I told him I never played the cards the man had offered, never held the strange deck soft as calfskin and marvelled at its pictures, a goat enthroned, a ship split by lightning. But now I'll tell the truth. We sat and played for hours. Sometimes he would win, sometimes I, and the stars hanging above us twisted as if we had travelled under the horizon to the world's end. When night softened into dawn, he barely played his last hand, placed the cards down gently in defeat. I threw my winning cards, then the candle flickered once and I was afraid to meet his gaze. But I felt the sadness in him, not at his loss, but something else, at the sun rising, thinning him. It was only when he turned to cross the bridge I saw his feet like goat's hooves, and I felt his gaze pinch at my back till I rounded the bend, saw St. Rhina's belfry dark against the dawn sky, fell retching in the ditch. If you doubt me, I'll show you the scars on my shoulders like wounds made by driven nails and I'll ask you now to pray that when I meet my God he'll recognise the kindness in playing a hand with the fallen. Well, doesn't that beat Banner? The train said no less. Isn't Santa the smart One of the potential translations of Banner as a place name is the place of pointed stones, reflecting the outcrop where we find St. Rhina's graveyard. I chose this as the name for my poetic history of the town because this vantage point above the river characterised something about Banagher for me. The permanence of stone, the determination of figures such as St. Rhina, and the water that creates an ever-shifting landscape where, when the sun breaks over the callows, Time itself becomes immaterial. But I did want this project to snatch a moment in time. And what better way to do so than with a new song? I was the sixth class teacher when the children came to me with this project after they finished with Miss Leonard in fifth class. Lisa Gardner again from St. Rhino's National School. 
After Elaine Agnew had turned my poem from the Shannon to St. Rhinus into a song, Geraldine Ralph from Music Generation Offaly Westmeath got involved to teach the song to Lisa's pupils. Obviously, the children themselves were a little bit nervous the day it came to the video. And uh, she was kind of saying to them, don't worry about the cameras, just look straight on, don't sing to the floor, sing out the, the roof of the church nearly. They really found it a massive experience. Hearing the song performed for the first time was quite magical. Normally I would be there at rehearsals and I would say, oh yeah, can we do it this way, can we do it that way? But just because of the situation we're in, we, that, that wasn't possible. But because I had worked with the children on Zoom and thought, yeah, those kids can do anything. So I had complete faith in them and in Geraldine to do a really great job. It was one of their highlights for sixth class and it was one of their memories that they had for the end of the year and I know that when it did air that the children and the parents they, it was nearly like a movie night to sit down and watch that we did this. For me the song was a perfect way to end this special project. I hope it'll be sung for years to come. <laughs>